Now the lounge is full of farmers for the sale. Hey everybody, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. My name is Ryan McGee, coming to you from Richmond, Virginia, and joining me, as always, our Professor of Peel, Dr. Jonathan Havercroft from Southampton, England. Jonathan, how are you doing? Pretty good. Uh, It's been a wet weekend, so I haven't really been out much. Uh, we've still got two more weeks till the ice goes in at Fenton's rink in England. So not quite back on the ice yet, but had a good weekend at home. Yeah. It looks like, uh, kind of all over North America clubs are starting to, to get back underway. I know the, the, the pros have been curling for a while, but it looks, you know, judging off of following a bunch of curling clubs on Twitter that a bunch of them are putting their ice in or just getting started with leagues. Um, so that's good to see. Uh, this will be an interesting show because I'm not sure how long my voice is going to last. Uh, this is, we're recording this on a Sunday, and uh, yesterday I went down to Norfolk, Virginia to watch the Virginia Tech Hokies play Old Dominion in American football and drank about nine Coors Lights and yelled a lot during the game, which Virginia Tech unfortunately lost. So it's the day after and I'm trying to take care of my voice as best I can, but I'm not sure uh, not sure how that's going to go. So it'll be interesting. All right. Well, we'll just play it by ear and see how long you can uh, hang on here. Yeah, no, uh, in more ways than one after watching that game. Um so we have some we have some news and results from around the curling world, particularly international curling. Uh, we had the first stop in the curling World Cup was was that two weeks ago? Uh, yeah, a couple weeks ago, uh, which you got to see a lot of. I did not. Uh, so in the U.S., that was broadcast on Olympic Channel, which I don't get and. You know, last year during the Worlds, I was able to watch on the app. It didn't make me log into a cable provider, and I was able to watch that way. Uh, this year, you did. I mean, I guess they've made. I guess they realized that that was happening and changed it to where you did have to log in. So I don't get the channel. So I didn't. The only things that I got to saw, see were uh, the highlights on the World uh, Curling Federation's YouTube page. But you said you got to watch. Uh, some of the games there in England, um, what were your takeaways? And we'll go, I guess we'll go over the results real quick. It was a Canadian sweep, ho-hum. Uh, the three finals in the men's, uh, Kevin Cooey defeated Stefan Wallstad from Norway. Uh, the women's side, Rachel Holman, uh, defeated Olympic champion Anna Hasselborg, uh, in the women's final and in mixed doubles. Uh, Canada defeated the U.S. Uh, Walker and Myers beat Anderson and Dropkin. And you said you got to see a lot of. You said every time that you tuned in, it seemed like the it was Anderson and Dropkin playing on the on the feet. Is that right? Yeah, I'm not quite sure why that is. I think it might just be um, those are the games that were on at the times they could broadcast in England. So we we got it through World Curling uh, TV and. Uh, yeah, it seemed like every time I could get get to watch it, it was mixed doubles, and it was Corey and and 
Sarah Sorry. Anderson playing him, right? So a lot of mixed doubles, which is all right. I think I got to watch a, one of the men's games with Muit, the Muit de Cruz game I got to watch. Uh, the la- the yeah. last one where uh, I did get to see that game. That was like one of the few. That was actually that was the only game that I got to watch was the the Muit game, the second one where uh, he had to win to force a draw to the button with Kevin Cooey to decide uh, who would win that pool. And Muit's last shot didn't curl for him, um, and he gave up a steal to De Cruz to lose that game. Yeah, and that that I mean that was the one thing I noted that really stood out was the curl seemed really inconsistent. Uh, mm-hmm. Like not, not, it wasn't a matter of like a technical fault. Like you'd, they'd be putting the broom down in the same spot, and <clears throat> from shot to shot, you could get a foot or two more difference on a draw in terms of curl, which tells me that uh, they had some problems with the ice, and you could kind of pick up on the mics also that uh, frost might have been a bit of an issue. Uh, and there's also some really inconsistent draw weight from from that level of play. So it looked like ice conditions may have had uh, a pretty big impact on the results there, which is unfortunate. Uh, was that consistent throughout all the draws that you got to see? I mean, I only saw what would have been. I, I guess it would have been Thursday, Friday UK time, which I think's Wednesday. I can't. I can't quite remember how we line up with China, but they're I in, normally catch the morning. They're twelve hours ahead of Eastern Standard Time. Yeah, so seven hours ahead of us. So I was. I was catching morning games, which were probably the evening draws in China. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> and so yeah, so I caught. I guess I caught like Thursday. Morning, Friday morning, whatever those, and Wednesday morning, I guess. So uh, it looked, uh, I mean, it looked like it was the ice conditions primarily was the deciding factor was the big issue. So oh, that's, yeah, that's not good for the first, uh, for the first event there for that, for the, for the curling world cup. It's also interesting. So that event was in Suzhou, which is just outside of Shanghai and Shanghai, I know, can be really warm, like Beijing, where the finals are going to be. That's way further north um, compared to like Shanghai and like Hong Kong's way south. If you're looking at China on a map, uh, Hong Kong's all the way down in the south, so it's um, it's very hot, very humid. Uh, about midway up the eastern coast of China is where Shanghai and Suzhou are, and I guess it's also can be really warm, really humid there. And then you get up. Beijing's kind of way north, further up in the mountains. So that's why it's, you know, able to host both a summer and winter Olympics. And it's kind of almost um, at the same parallel as um, Pyeongchang was uh, for the Korean Olympics. So it's interesting that they put the first event when it's still kind of warm, um, you know, that far south in China where you could have these, these issues. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, I assume it has something, I think it's a brand new facility. I think that was the first event in the facility. So that may have been part of the, I I, I know that basically the whole events being largely backed by Chinese companies. And so part of the appeal may have been some tie in there. Mm -hmm. Not quite sure, but we saw a bit of that with uh, the world championships in Vegas last year. too. They were the, yeah, the last, Three, three or four draws were not great ice conditions, borderline disaster ice conditions. Uh, you know, I don't know. I think it's safe to call them a disaster when they're having to scrape during the fifth in break. Um, yeah. 
but it, to their credit, it's not supposed to be humid in Las Vegas. It's supposed to be dry and arid. And those last couple days, just for some reason, it was really humid in Las Vegas, which you don't expect there. You do expect it um, when you're along the coast, uh, like in like around Shanghai and China. Yeah, no, it's a, it, I mean, it's, it's always going to depend. It could be also just be facility situations, could be how the ice plant's running, could be a lot of factors. It uh, could be the water. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah, too. I mean, I, you know, I've spoken to a lot of ice techs at different events like this, and they'll, they're always interesting to talk to. They're actually, in some ways, give you the, the most interesting insight, but like no one wants to talk to them because they're just ice techs is most people's uh-huh. attitude, but They'll they'll be quite honest about the ice conditions to basically anyone who asks, and and they'll let you know what the issues are. And it's often it could be humid. Humidity is a big one, right? Obviously, if it's moist outside, it's not good. But uh, it could it could be the water quality also in a local place that can really affect things too. So um, you never really know what's behind it when you're watching on TV. But it looked like the ice was the big big factor there, which hopefully they'll get sorted for the, the later events. So other than ice conditions, I guess our main takeaways are the new team Kui looks pretty good, uh, including the championship game. They went 6-1, and one, and their one loss uh, was, I think, early in the round robin to Bruce Mewitt. Uh, but, you know, 6-1 and one with a new team for – or a new um, – two new players for Team Kevin Kui. Um, so starting – and that was their first event too. I believe that was their first um, – competitive games with the new with the new for, with the new team uh and to go six and one's pretty impressive on an international stage yeah i think so i mean i think i read somewhere that he said kui said they'd actually only been together for one training weekend and then flew out and, and played so that's actually really impressive just basically it was i think their their goal there may not have been to win it may just have been to feel things out but it seems like they're a strong enough team just on the shooting to to roll over most of the competition there and they were i mean they were 6 inches of curl away from having to be in a one one draw shootout with uh with Bruce Mewitt to decide who won uh that pool so Five and one in the round robin, but you know it could have gone either way there to see who would play Stefan Wallstad. Uh, disappointing event, probably if you're the Nicholas Adine team. They went three and three in the round robin, um, and obviously were were left out of the championship game. Uh, on the women's side, you were you were telling me that there seemed to be kind of a steep drop off there between the top two teams, Hasselberg and Homan, uh, and the rest of the field. Uh, I know Eve's, Eve Muirhead's team was there, but they were skipped by Jennifer Dodds. Um, both Hasselborg and Homan went five and one in the round robin, and then played in the final. So, what is that? What you noticed, kind of, from what you were able to see? Yeah, I think with Eve on the sideline, like the rest. Of, I mean, that's that's a pretty big jump for Jennifer Dodds to be <clears throat> brought into skipping at kind of that level. So I, and with a brand new team, new lineup, I think it, I think that'd be like a big ass for them to kind of qualify their first, first event out of the gate. So, uh, yeah, and I, th- I guess Sidorova, that's a blended team. So also like from, from Moseva from last year. So perhaps they're also figuring things out. So there was a big advantage there for Holman and Hasselberg to basically go in 
with established lineups. Uh, and it's like a huge advantage often early in the season, right? Uh, so it was no surprise there. I think that those two teams kind of did. And those, well. and those were two teams that stayed together from last year. So they're not, you know, they're not having to figure out communication issues or anything like that. Uh, Nina Roth and Fujisawa from Japan both went three and three in the round robins. Uh, so they were, I mean, they were probably that next level below Homan and Hasselborg. Uh, interesting, and we'll get into this a little bit later as well. Team Korea sent uh, not Kim Un Jong, the the which is the Garlic Girls team that that won silver at the Olympics. They sent uh, Kim Min Jai, who represented Korea at the last three junior championships, uh, and they went one and five in the round robin. It's kind of interesting that we haven't seen uh, Kim Un Jong's team uh, yet this season. Um, so, I'm, and I haven't heard anything about her possibly retiring or anything like that. I don't. I can't imagine that that's the case. They may just be kind of easing into this season. I mean, it might be scheduling or. You know, it could be a hundred different things, but we haven't seen them yet this season. It'll be interesting to see if we see them at the PACC in November. Um, so yeah, there were no Eve Muirhead, no Garlic Girls, um, and then a lot of domination from the Holman and Hasselborg teams on the women's side. Uh, in the mixed doubles side, uh, you saw a pretty impressive performance there from Anderson and Dropkin. Um, you know, they won twice against the Swiss team and that was the same team that they sent to the Olympics that won silver, um, won silver in Korea earlier this year. So impressive for them to go six and zero in the round Robin, uh, and beat that Swiss team twice. Uh, and that's a very young team. So that may be, I mean, that that's looking like a pretty promising team for the U S for the future. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I think uh, <clears throat> different countries are taking different approaches to mixed doubles. So it looks like Britain's wants their teams to be mixed double specialists, mm-hmm. and um, it looks like the U.S. wants their their players that are normally on the high performance teams, like on the men's and women's high performance teams, to also do mixed doubles. So like Dropkins kind of got his, a good men's team going, kind of, I guess they call themselves the Young Pups or something. The young Bucks. So, the Young Bucks, that's what they're calling themselves <laughs> anyway. But so they're clearly kind of a youth team, but they're, so he's doing a pretty, it looks like a pretty full schedule on the men's, but he's all, he already did the event down in New Zealand, this event in China, plus hitting some men's events. So I'm kind of curious uh, how that all shakes out. In terms of like mixed doubles, that looks like, they're probably the go-to pair right now. I guess the Hamiltons are kind of the defending Olympic trials uh, title holders, but it looks, you know, like Dropkin and Anderson are kind of putting up some good numbers in the early phases of the mixed doubles tour. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see between those two teams who winds up representing the U.S. uh, at the next world championships. And then I think Anderson is on... Um, Jamie Sinclair's team. So I think she plays a pretty full schedule outside of mixed doubles as well. Yeah. So that'll be, I'll be curious to see how it shakes out. I think, I think that's going to be one of the big questions for this quad is do 
mixed doubles specialists start to break away from traditional curling and just do a full tour schedule? And does it become a bit more niche? Or do we see the continuation of top players from the top men's and women's team simply getting together and playing a few mixed doubles spiels and kind of mixed doubles is still a, a backup plan? I think you'll see that from the deeper countries. Um, and then I think you'll see mixed double specialists come from come from countries that you know maybe don't have nearly as much success at at four person curling. Because um, we've kind of, we've kind of seen that from from some of the the smaller nations, like the the Perret Rios team from Switzerland. I think they are dedicated a dedicated mixed doubles team, right? I think so. I don't know if they play. Uh, I don't know. Does Rios play men's at all, or no? I don't know. I'd have to look. Uh, I can. I can check that. But I. I haven't seen his name pop up. But I also haven't looked too closely uh, this early on. Um, but that's a that's a pretty strong mixed doubles team that the that the Swiss have. Um, what did you, what did you think of the of the event overall? Uh, does it look like it's going to have some staying power? I mean, so what I like is that it's country based, not team based, like in the slams, if you will. So you're cheering for countries. So I think that's good, and I like that you have all three events in there. I, personally, I'd like to see more countries, like kind of spread it around a bit more. What countries are included? Mm -hmm. and maybe make the three feeder events a bit more regionally focused. So maybe a bit more Asia Pacific for the China one, Europe for the Swedish one. And I guess it's a bit tricky with North America, but maybe, you know, figure out a way to kind of get a few more countries involved like this, like the lack of Swiss women's in any of the world cup events makes no sense to me. Yeah. Same here. And, you know, I think they're, I, I guess part of what they want is the big names so they can attract the TV. But um, I honestly think what this event's going for is the international TV markets. So there might be something to be said for sacrificing a few of the big names at the top uh, in exchange for getting a few more of the countries uh, kind of, you know, not quite, I want to say B tier, but say countries rank, say, fifth through 10th or 12th in the world rather than just the top five or six countries for all these events. Yeah. I w in in America it's it's seems like it's easy to find TV ratings and TV ratings aren't TV ratings aren't the end all be all of whether a sport or a league or anything uh sports related um they aren't the end all be all indicator of health but it would be interesting to see what these broadcasts drew in various countries for this event and see if that met the WCF's expectations for it. Yeah, I agree. It's it'd be interesting to see what the ratings are. My my other things, I'm not quite sold on the format of the double round robin. I, I'd prefer something similar to the Canada Cup where you it's a single round robin two versus three semifinal, one set, one final. I think that's a really nice format for kind of an eight team event. And that might mean adding an extra day to the event. But if you spread out the number of countries involved, perhaps that becomes a bit less of a burden in terms of uh, the number of teams that can commit. Mm -hmm. 
Speaking of spreading out the number of countries involved, we did not see that uh, when they announced the Continental Cup teams. Uh, so it'll be the Continental Cup uh, is back in Las Vegas, uh, January 17th through 20th. Um, it should be broadcast on TSN, which means it will be on, I think it'll be on ESPN Plus. So if you're unfamiliar with American television, you could watch TSN um, curling feeds on ESPN three, which is not in not an actual network. It's just kind of what they've branded their online only broadcasts. So for the last few years, I've been able to watch like the Briar, the Continental Cup, and the Scotties um, online. Uh, and if you have an Apple TV or a Roku or anything like that, you can watch it just on your television, just like you're watching any other channel, which has been great. Um, ESPN, a couple of months ago, launched what they call ESPN Plus, which is a subscription-based um, service. It's kind of the same thing. It's a bunch of their ESPN3 broadcasts that you now have to pay about $5 a month for. And I imagine... So they're putting soccer and rugby and kind of international sports, Canadian Football League on under ESPN Plus where you have to pay for it. So I have a feeling that since the TSN broadcasts for the CFL were on ESPN Plus, it'll be the same thing for for the curling broadcasts. So the Continental Cup will be available uh, on television and online here in North America. Uh, so they announced the teams for this event. Uh, for Team North America on the men's side, Team Cooey, Team Gushu, Team Schuster. And on the women's side, Team Jones, Team Homan, and Team Sinclair. And I mean, those are your big names for – those are the, probably the big four for Canada, and those are probably the big four uh, – or I'm sorry, the big two for uh, the U.S. as far as recent success and names that people familiar with curling are going to know. Um, so I have no problems with those teams, um, on the team world side, uh, as the, as the twine time blog pull, uh, pointed out, uh, it is basically team Europe because the, on the men's side, it's Muet, De Cruz and Adine, And on the women's side, Muirhead, Tiranzoni and Hasselborg. So all European teams and all from the same three countries, uh, for those six teams. Uh, what did you think of these team selections? Do you have any qualms with, you know, there not being any PACC teams or they're not spreading out, um, you know, the, the, the countries that have been invited? Well, isn't it just uh, like the medalists from the last uh, couple of events? Like the only, the only team that I could see having a legit complaint is um the garlic girls right yeah and if you're if you're going for tv ratings i mean that's a team that people who just watched the olympics are gonna know um as we said before you know it could have been a scheduling thing um because they you know they haven't played yet this year i know she got married kim un jong got married over the summer uh you know it could just be scheduling uh, but the Japanese team also won bronze last year, and Fujisawa just went to 
the curling world cup and went three and three, you know, they weren't invited either. Again, it might be a scheduling thing. I don't know what's going on, uh, in January. Um, it is kind of close to the, the Japanese curling, um, championships that just, that I guess determines who goes to worlds, but it seems like this would be, you know, a good event to have one of those teams at to kind of draw possible ratings from from that part of the world. But interesting to see that it's all Switzerland, Scotland, and Sweden. I mean, despite all the talk about the rest of the world catching up, I think if you look at the Curling World Cup and you look at, uh, you know, when the dust settled last year, it's still mm-hmm. Canada, still the best country. Mm-hmm. Then Sweden and Scotland and Switzerland are kind of in the next tier. There's definitely a lot more teams coming up like behind that top four tier, but I still don't think they've quite closed the gap yet where you could say that a China or a Japan or a Korea is yet posted consistent results internationally at the same level as say Scotland or Sweden or Switzerland over the last 10, 15 years. I think that's definitely true, um, but I think you have – individual teams that I think are, are on that level. And I think Fujisawa and the Kim Un-jung team um, are at that level, but it's, you know, there could be a bunch of different reasons that they weren't invited. Um, it'll also be interesting to see if Eve is going to be in that event. Cause we still haven't seen her. She's still um, coming back from her injury. So it's announced as Team Muirhead, but it could be Jennifer Dodds there skipping. We don't know yet. We're not sure yet. I think the last I heard is she's targeting Euros to come back. So okay. So if she, yeah, if she's at if she's in the European uh, Championships, uh, barring you know hopefully not injuring it further, uh, she should be at the Continental Cup, I guess. Yeah. Um, other thing that's interesting to me: um, the the format has changed. There will be only two draws, uh, one men's draw, one women's draw of just traditional four-person curling, which I think is way down from previous version. Uh, previous versions of this event, they are giving us six draws of mixed doubles, and they are now that this event is in the Olympics, they are really trying to force mixed doubles on us now, aren't they? Yeah, and you know, uh, yeah, there's definitely a pre- a push for it. Like I said, I think part of the reason uh, I kept seeing Corey Dropkin on my TV is because WCF wanted to broadcast as many mixed doubles games as they could. It seemed like there would be men's or women's games going on at the same time, but uh, they opted a lot of the time for mixed doubles games. Uh, I think, you know, here's the funny thing. My, my mom, who's kind of only tied to curling is the fact that I curl uh-huh. and only watches curling if I'm at home and watching it or during the Olympics said last year, she really liked mixed doubles. <laughs> so what was her uh, like, reasoning? <laughs> it actually, I talked to her. It made sense. Basically she thought it was very fast compared to traditional curling, which is true. Mm-hmm. And I think she thought the strategy was easier to follow, which I think also makes sense, right? If you're not a curler looking at someone putting up a corner guard, looks like a missed shot, right? Yeah. Whereas this is kind of obvious race to the button kind of game. Personally, I don't think it has much strategy to it, but, uh, you know, it gets a lot of rocks in play, sets up some interesting angles. And, you know, I think people, 
to the lay the lay view or the non curler watching a bunch of stones in play is kind of perhaps more interesting than uh watching a clean end or watching corner guards go up or looking at some of the more what I consider more advanced or more nuanced strategy you get in the traditional game. Uh is your mom going to watch the Continental Cup? She will not watch the Continental Cup. She did think that John Morrison was a wonderful gentleman. That's what she said to me. She liked how he how he treated Caitlin Laws. That was her that was her takeaway from the Olympics. So uh yeah, she liked mixed doubles. So anyway. So so or but you just said she's not going to watch the Continental Cup. So is having all these draws of mixed doubles really going to bring in more viewers or make more people care about this competition? You know, it's a bit like I, I know probably I'm going to lose ninety percent of our audience if I draw this analogy, but <laughs> it's a bit like cricket with uh, so cricket. The traditional format in cricket is a five day test match, right? So it's basically five full televised days of a cricket match. Two Meaning innings. 2020. And 2020 is the new format where you can, it's basically like a baseball game. It's over in, in three hours or less. And like speaking person, like um, all of my English friends are diehard cricket fanatics. And I personally just don't see the point of a five, <laughs> five day game, which is like sacrilege to a cricket fan. But uh-huh. for me, 2020, I'm like, it's like watching a baseball game. I can kind of follow it. I find it a lot more interesting. So I think. For good or for ill, that's where most spectator TV is going, where it's shorter, higher scoring, a bit more gimmicky, no patience for kind of more drawn out stuff, you know. So it, it kind of makes sense that this this mixed doubles format really is, I think, uh, made for the TV age, right? I guess. Um, but I mean, it's not like... So like traditional four person curling takes five days. I know sometimes it feels like it, but you know, it's still only lasting what 30 minutes longer than, than a mixed doubles game. Well, if it's an eight end game, if it's a 10 end game, it's two oh, and yeah. a half to three. And I mean, I think I can understand part of it. Like I, I have no, I actually find an old school defensive game where a team's trying to protect the lead. Interesting to watch. Right. But mm-hmm. you know, the, but maybe that's not what everyone's cup of tea is, right? For a baseball purist, a one nothing well pitched game is great to watch. But for the average fan, they just want, you know, juiced up home run ball like in the nineties. So, <laughs> chicks dig the long ball. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so if we're doing so, if we're doing six draws of mixed doubles, why aren't some of the Full, you know, the better mixed doubles teams there. Why are we pulling from our traditional four-person teams that we're sending there? Why aren't uh, Myers and Walker going to be there for Canada? Why aren't um, why you know why aren't we going to see uh, Dropkin and Anderson for the U.S. or you know the the Swiss silver medalist like we just talked about? Why is it just going to be you know pulling? Pulling people that maybe don't necessarily play mixed doubles, throwing them into a mixed doubles game just for fun. Uh, I mean, that's a good question. I think it's going to come. I get it's what I said a bit earlier. I think one of the big debates in this cycle is going to be: Does mixed doubles split off and become its own event with its own specialists, or did Caitlin and Johnny Mo show us a little bit of a path there where actually the best shooters still matter? And so. 
they didn't really, I think John Morris played a fair bit with Rachel Holman, but it was kind of, you know, I think John was always the fallback guy for, for Rachel's uh, Olympic plans, but uh-huh. they basically threw together a team a week later, we're playing in the trials and, you know, a and month won. later we're playing yeah. in the Olympics and winning it. The, is it, is it a case you really need to be a mixed double specialist or is it just if you're a good shot maker, good shot making is going to prevail regardless of how much mixed doubles you play versus ordinary curling? Well, and that's kind of how the the Walker and Myers team uh, came together last year because uh, Laura Crocker at the time was going to play uh, with Jeff Walker um, and then Gushu won the Briar again. So Jeff Walker was going to be at Worlds around the same time. I think it was. I think they overlapped too. That the um that the doubles uh either double. I think doubles trials for um for for Canada were going on. So Laura Crocker picked up um picked Myers up as her partner, and then they went and won, and then went to Worlds, and then the same here at the. Curling World Cup, I guess they wound up playing together again and winning. Yeah, so yeah. I, it's uh, I'm not I'm not sure yet what that means, right? So I I think actually all the teams that they've picked there have great um, great shooters on them. Mm-hmm. So I I don't see why uh, why it won't be good mixed doubles games. And I actually think from the definitely from the Canadian side, like. Jeff Stoughton's challenge last cycle was to get the elite teams to play mixed doubles. I think a lot of them looked down at it a bit, like it wasn't really their thing. And at best, a lot of them thought this is their backup plan to get to the Olympics if they don't qualify through the main event. But uh, maybe that part of that's still kind of driving getting the elite teams to also do mixed doubles as well. And they're trying to get me to watch it. And I, they, I, I just, I just don't really get into it. After watching, you know, Briar and Scotty's for I, I for whatever reason I can't get into watching mixed doubles on TV. It just the house becomes a cluster, and I don't know. It doesn't really it it doesn't really attract me as a fan. What I am interested in is what they've announced new for this year, which is this team scramble concept where they're going to take the men's and women's teams and mix them up into new, um, into new lineups. And you're going to have a one men's draw of mixed up teams, one women's draw of mixed up teams and one mixed draw of, of mixed up teams. Uh, I am interested to see that and to see who gets paired with who for, for North America and, and world. Yeah. I think that's going to be interesting. I think, uh, a few years ago, they used to do the draft for the TSN skins game. I think they dropped away from that, right? Uh, I think it was like a. I think it was like a vote. Like the the fans voted on who played on which team. I think there was, but there was a couple of years where they did a draft, right? I, I remember like uh, Stoughton picking Hebes first or something once. Uh, maybe uh, I don't remember. I don't. I don't remember that one because I've also never watched one of the the TSN skins. Uh, it's just, it hasn't been available here in the U S from what I remember. Yeah. It's, that's a hard one for me to get in, uh, in England too. But I think, I think they did do draft one or two years as kind of a gimmick, but I actually thought that worked. You get to see a bunch of teams thrown together. that don't know people don't know. We play together. 
figuring it out. So the scramble will be pretty interesting, right? I think. Yeah. Uh, what I'd what I'd kind of like to see is I'd like to see Ben Hebert and Matt Hamilton uh, as the same front end, just because I would kind of like to see that personality clash play out during an eight-in curling game. <laughs> see how, <laughs> how that would work. Um, but that's just me being diabolical. Uh, but yeah, it would. It's going to be interesting to see, you know, some of the U.S. guys getting mixed in with some of the Canadian teams and seeing them have to play together. That to me, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I think that. Well, I actually think that'd be a bromance right there. Personally, I you, you think they're going to start fighting? They could either fight or be. I think I actually think it would be a bromance with those two personalities. It would really be one extreme or the other. I think. Yeah. Just because yeah. those are two very big personalities on a, and usually within their team, probably the dom- they're used to being like the dominant, you know, personality wise, being the dominant, you know, big personality. Yeah, for sure. Although I think Colton Flash has kind of got a bit of a personality too, so I, I'm wondering how that that dynamic might develop yeah. over time. Yeah, so. I don't know. You're you're never going to be more gregarious than Ben Hebert, though. I think on any curling team. That's true. Although Matt Hamilton will give him a run for his money. So that's that's the team we want to see. We don't care yeah. about the back end. Yeah. I really yeah, I really don't care who else gets mixed together um at during the team scramble. I just want to see Hamilton and Hebert on the same front end. Yeah, that'll be good. Yeah. Um, so And so will I guess for the mix, will there be teams skipped by women and teams skipped by men? Is that the Yes. They said at least one of the teams has to be uh skipped by one of the the women's players. Oh, so what if like uh what if like Homan ends up with Hebes? Oh that'd be good. (laughs) That might not go (laughs) so pretty good. Oh man, I'm trying to think of who else. What else would be good in that case? Um, you could end up with oh no, because uh, it's Team Muet, so none of Eve's brothers are going to be there. That would have been fun. Get Eve, get, you know, a team, basically a team of Muirheads. I think yeah. that that would have been fun. Oh, so, that'd be yeah, good. Yeah. I'd like. I would have liked to have seen that at a Continental Cup. Just all Muirheads, kind of like we had all. Uh, even though they're not related, a team of all Kims uh, from yeah. Team Korea, at the <laughs> just all Muirheads. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a good team. <laughs> um, and so, t- to that end, is this really just a made-for-TV event that we're kind of overanalyzing by saying, "Oh, there's no PACC teams. Oh, there's too much mixed doubles." Like, are we just reading way too much into this? Yeah, I mean that's the short answer. Yes, I think it's <laughs> always been a made-for-TV event. I think it's become like I'd say 15, 20 years ago, the skins game was kind of the the de facto all-star break for curling. And mm-hmm. now I think the Continental Cup has kind of become the all-star break for curling. That's a very that's a good point there. Because it's right before it's kind of the end of the um tour season in the begin right before playdowns, right? Yeah. And that's why it's always been there. It's kinda at least the way Curling Canada sees it is they want the Canada Cup or Roar of the Rings to be the end of the autumn cash season. And then there's a break for Christmas, do this thing. And then there's the playdowns in, in January, February, and then the, the season of champions. And it's, it's become 
it's become an excuse for Canadians to go to Las Vegas in the middle of January too, right? Yeah, and I think having been to that venue for uh, for the World Championship last year, I think it's a great spot, right? If uh, you know, it's I didn't have I didn't actually leave the hotel complex all weekend. There's tons of stuff to do, even if you're not a gambler or if you're a gambler like my roommate Mark. Then there's lots of gambling to do too. I can't believe I still can't believe you didn't go see Celine Dion, man. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't pay me to say Celine Dion. I think if there was any like show that you that I might have gone to, but I'm just not. Like, it would be Britney just to see like what she's like now, kind of like yeah. you know, burned out Britney. I think I'd rather pay uh, for that than. Oh no, Celine I've heard Dion. that show is great. It's supposed to be great, right? It's a I bit. Think, it's yeah, a bit. I think the Britney show is great. But isn't it kind of like? Isn't she basically like a prisoner, and she's like forced to do this, and she doesn't have any rights or something, or? I I don't think it's quite like that. Like everything I've heard is that the, the that it's a really good show. Like she puts on a really good show still. Yeah, but isn't it that like her dad took away her legal rights when she had her meltdown ten years ago, and then they've basically oh I haven't seen. I don't know about oh. that. All right. She's <laughs> back to, I mean, she's back to looking great though. Yeah. All right. Well, good. Well, we'll go. So check she seems it out. like she yeah. seems like it's she's got it back together. Yeah. Good for her. <laughs> you also, yeah, you also didn't go see Cirque. Like you had all these great. Yeah, you could have gone seeing. Yeah, there were. There's a bunch of Cirque shows there that are worth seeing. That's true. Whatever. Actually, Cirque is worth seeing. I should have done Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, you should have. That's um, true. Especially, yeah. Or yeah, you're from Montreal. You should have gone to see Cirque. That's true. I'm not a good Montrealer. What can oh. I say? Um. Let's see anything. Uh, anything else uh, that you'd like to touch on uh, as far as Continental Cup and Curling World Cup are I mean, concerned? I think it's. I mean, more curling on TV is, I think, always good, and I think it's good to see events of a similar caliber to the Grand Slam stuff, so that more international teams can get TV exposure. So I think that's all all to the plus side. Yeah. I s- I also see this as an event that kind of because as you said, it's kind of the all-star break. It's in, it's a way to introduce European and PACC teams that outside of the Olympics, Canadian fans may not be aware of. And it's kind of the same way with the baseball all-star break. Most fans aren't going to know, the really good players for, or, you know, casual fans aren't going to know the good players from the twins and the reds. Um, but when they get to play in the all-star game, you get to see, you know, you're introduced to these guys that you don't see on TV and that if you just kind of casually follow your team uh, in MLB, that you may not be aware of these guys, you know, it's a good way to, to showcase them to a national audience. I think it's kind of the same way uh, with the continental cup. It'd be a way to, you know, get, Get teams from PACC that people aren't aware of, you know, in front of in front of eyeballs in a in a casual environment. And again, you kind of get to see the personalities come out at this event because it's not, you know, full on stress like Worlds and the Briar are. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe the way to do that is to. I remember it was super unpopular when they went Canada versus the World or versus whatever it was. Uh, few years ago but maybe if you do north america versus europe one year north america versus asia the other year make it a bit more like Ryder cup style mm-hmm. that might 
that might then lock in some of the Asian the kind of interest in the Asian teams, right? So yeah, and I get and there's also I don't it, it I mean it varies from player to player. There's also a little bit of a, a language barrier, I guess, with some of them. I know some of them speak very good English, but there there also might be the language barrier there. Yeah, that's gonna that's gonna vary from uh, team from to team. To I think yeah. most of the European teams are fluent in English. My experience with the Chinese teams is they they don't really speak English at all. They often have a translator with them. Well, I mean, shoot, some of the some of the guys from the Norwegian and Swedish teams, I can understand them better than some of the guys on Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so actually, where, this, the crew speaks English because one of his guys is uh, like Swiss German. Yeah. And the rest of them are yeah. Swiss French. And so half the time they talk in English because they actually, that's actually an easier language for them to communicate in. Yeah. Some of it, yeah. Because what, Switzerland has how many official languages? All. Yeah. I think it's, I, <laughs> well, I think it's, it's, it's got Italian, French, German for sure. I'm not sure if it has English as an official language, but it's yeah, no problem speaking that. English there. I saw that because I watched them during the Baden Masters, and the the guy who was doing the the commentating for for that event touched on the fact that they all speak all these different languages, and a lot of times they they said you'll hear like four different languages while watching the De Cruz team play. Yeah, no, it's I curled in a Bonspiel in Cortina, which is like the Italian Alps, but like Alp curling's its own thing, like it's not. It's not country based. It's like basically everyone in the Alps is part of its own weird kind of curling circuit, kind of like the upper Midwest in the US or Scotland. And the thing that really crossed me up is I play a team, they're speaking all Italian. And I'd be like, Are you from Italy? They'd be like, Oh, no, we're from Switzerland. Then I play a team that was like speaking all German. I'd be like, Oh, are you from Switzerland? They'd be like, Oh, no, we're from Italy. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so. It's like one of those parts of the world where the languages don't quite fit the border, right? It's it's you know, a World War One and World War Two were partly over those issues. So anyway. Yeah. So a, I guess the as we switch over to our Professor of Peel segment, uh, you had something that you wanted to touch on, uh, which you kind of have deemed the curling bubble, and I think events like the curling world cup and the continental cup um according to what you sent me before we started recording have kind of contributed to what you're calling the curling bubble uh which is basically you know going after tv dollars and going after um big money events like this have kind of cost the sport at the grassroots level uh so i'm interested to hear uh, your reasoning for that um, and kind of what what you mean when you say curling bubble. So I guess the easiest way to think of it is similar to the housing bubble or a stock market bubble or anything else where a bunch of money rushes into some kind of market that inflates the price and then the underlying value of what's being priced in can't sustain that price is is the easiest way to think about it. So if I'm talking about a curling bubble, what that means is money starting to come in for TV, but more importantly, a lot of money starting to come flying in for what I call pro curling or Olympic level curling. Mm -hmm. And then that comes in and kind of shakes up all the dynamics underneath. 
and the kind of underlying foundation can't really sustain the prices or the expectations being asked for, if that, that makes sense. So what I'm thinking about here is that at one level, at the elite level, it looks like everything's going well, right? So you've got U.S. men's team winning a gold medal, and that sparks this curling boom in the U.S., thousands of people showing up at open houses. I just saw an email this week from USA Curling saying membership's at 22,000, and that's from last year. That's not even going to count. There's going to be a bigger membership bump this year just because they'll start collecting the dues for everyone who joined clubs post-Olympic bounce um, last season. You've got the Grand Slam of curling expanding again. So the Elite 10 was a men's-only event last year. Now it's got both genders in it. So you've got two divisions. You've got WCF with the World Curling Series. Over here in Great Britain, you've got an increase in funding for the next quad for uh, British curling, up to six and a half million, which is six and a half million pounds. So and it's a I lot of money being put in there. That's like... It's like 8 million US, 10 million Canadian, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's a lot of money going in. Um, and then, but then at the, the bottom level, we've got this other thing going on, right? Where uh, I, I'm not quite sure the d- details in GTA, but it looks like the Weston Curling Club has folded, which was renting at a, at a golf and country club. But it looks like there's a club going under there. Um, over here, we've had. One of the bond spiels at the start of the season, the one of the kind of competitive ones, uh, Brayhead Open was canceled because of lack of entries. And this is a bond spiel that like Muet and uh, Ewan McDonald, like, you know, two top international teams, they were playing in that thing three, four years ago. Uh, and when, like la- two years ago, I was playing in it and we played Kubasova, who's like the Czech women's team. So it's a, it's oh, yeah. a bond spiel that's historically attracted really good international teams. But those international teams that are getting the big Olympic funding don't go to that bond spiel anymore because they're getting funding now and they are, where they want to go is Canada. So they're at the Stu Styles or the Oakville or kind of some of the big, big kind of start of the season events there. And a lot of the more kind of what I call recreational competitive teams stopped entering this bond spiel because they didn't want to get their butts kicked by high performance teams that are playing full time. So... What I'm worried about is that as we're getting more and more money pushed into the professional side of the game, that's going into, say, the top 20 to 30 teams on each side in the world. So you're talking 100 to 150 curlers, uh, getting a lot of the money and resources, and it's great for kind of high-level curling. But that might end up running roughshod over a lot of the older traditional, what I call grassroots curling events, grassroots curling clubs. Is that because, I guess, <laughs> kind of similar to the 80s, uh, the trickle-down economics of curling isn't working? Uh, the money isn't getting past those those high-level teams? It's not working its way down into the clubs? Is that one of the reasons? I mean, that's definitely part of it, right? So when I was on the U.S. curling board, it was explicit. The U.S. Olympic Committee was explicit. We're giving you this pile of money. And back, I mean, now after the U.S. won the uh, the gold medal, like I have no idea what they're getting, but it's going to be a lot more. But it was it was still a pretty sizable chunk of money, and they said you can only spend this money on the high performance program because what we care about is medals, 
right? And they're clear about that. It's their money and they're trying to invest in Olympic medals, not in grassroots curling. But people who are members would look at the USCA budget and say, man, you got a lot of money. Why is none of that trickling down to clubs? And actually contractually, the USCA couldn't give any of that money to clubs. Same thing with British curling. Their job is to take all that money and dump it into high performance. So really the top you know, top three teams in each category are going to get the bulk of that money plus the costs for kind of the overhead of running the National Curling Academy and staffing costs. But that money is not really going to trickle down to the grassroots curlers in Scotland or England or Wales. So is the thinking, if we spend all this money to win medals, um, the exposure from winning medals will result in more people coming out and becoming curlers and then that leading to more money at the club level because you have an increased now increased number of members. I mean, so that's the hope. So certainly if you talk to people at the US Curling Association, they've always seen there being like a virtuous cycle between kind of elite performance, getting curling on TV, getting more people joining clubs, growing clubs, growing the game. And I think in the US there's a lot of evidence that that's working, but in Canada and certainly in Scotland, the opposite's happening, right? So Canada, like participation in playdowns is actually down. I think I talked to a lot of old kind of competitive friends and they, they basically say there's no point in going out and playing in these bond spiels anymore or entering playdowns because I can't possibly keep up with a team that's able to play full-time, has a full gym program. If I've got a job, a family, and a bunch of other stuff, I can't do the things that an elite team can do. There's no point in me spending my time and money on that. And then I think, unfortunately, what happens next is if I can't enter playdowns, why bother curling more than once or twice a week? And eventually it's just, I'll drop this and go do something else. So you're starting to see a drop in kind of membership in Canada, a drop certainly in Scotland in terms of participation in events. So I'm a bit worried that that dynamic could also play out in in the U.S. and in other countries too. But isn't the so the sport is much more established in Scotland and Canada though, right? And they've kind of already gone through this. Whereas in the U.S., you have a bunch of people who had no idea what this sport was who have kind of started coming to this sport. And outside of you know a few curling and golf clubs in New England and maybe in the Midwest, you know, it's not really an established sport that's seen as a country club sport or, you know, you're getting people that are in the U S you're getting people who are more excited about this sport, I think, because they're kind of just learning about it. Yeah. And so I, I kind of wonder there, right. Does it, it does the, so the U S might be showing a path forward. It might also just hit a natural limit really quickly. I think even in Minnesota, there's been a drop in um, what I call competitive, uh, like like what I call club competitive or the kinds of teams that would be like top of their club playing the local bond spiels, enter play downs. There's fewer and fewer of those teams. Mm-hmm. Like then even if you look at the num- number of entries for national championships, uh, that's gone down a lot over the last 15 to 20 years, right? So even there, that dynamics dropped. What's interesting about the US is in its place, they've developed a lot more of these 
other kinds of competitions, right? So the club curling championship is a different championship. It's not meant for the the elite. It's meant for kind of the top of the club. And that's the, the, National. That's the equivalent of the travelers in Canada, right? Yeah. So you got the travelers in Canada doing something similar. So, you know, one possible path is there's basically a split between the pro and the amateur game kind of entirely. And then that kind of, I think, raised a bunch of interesting questions too, right? So what happens to the briar? Because even though the briar is now dominated by these these kind of what I call the pro teams, basically, um, it's still kind of set up in a way where it's, you get the best team, at least from your province, and try to play down through some kind of play down path mm-hmm. versus, say, the Canada Cup, where in theory, you could actually have a team just only like four four superstars from across Canada, regardless of kind of regional eligibility, and you qualify just through playing on the cash spiel circuit entirely. So, And that's something that really separates Canada from the rest of the world is the Briar. Um, And, you know, other other than the Olympics, I'd argue it's the biggest curling tournament in the world in terms of, I mean, especially if if you look at it from a ticket sold aspect and a viewership aspect, I think other than the Olympics, the Briar is the next biggest tournament. Um, and a lot of that is because you're rooting for your province. You have to go through this play down process. And up until recently, it was based on where you lived. Um, and, and yeah, w- what happens to the Briar in the next five years will be really interesting because there was a, there was a big backlash when they're, they're, I think they're trying to do too much because they're trying to be super inclusive and also at the same time increase the level of competition for the Briar, if that makes sense. Because they added, you know, they separated all the territories, so they invited all of them. And then they tried to, you know, do this pre Briar competition that basically whittled all of those smaller territories and traditionally less successful provinces and only put one of them into the main briar and they almost they had a borderline player revolt at that um and i think you saw a little bit of a viewership and and ticket buying revolt uh in response to that and now they've added this wild card team so no matter or two wild card teams now and then they play each other to see who plays into the main briar um you know that's that's based on how you do on the professional curling tour. So it, it's interesting to see what's happening in Canada because they're they're trying to include everyone and they're trying to include more professional curlers. And I don't think that the mix is working right now. I think they really need to just do it one way or the other. Yeah, I mean it's a big it's a big issue, right? So. I think one big question is what becomes the Briar or and the Scotties, yeah. right? Like these these are two marquee events, but even they're past their peak, right? Like the highest, like I'm not sure hundred percent, but to my memory, the most watched live Briar was the '97 Briar in the Calgary Saddle Dome. Right? Uh, th- I, I don't I don't know anything. I know that the the most um, you know the the Briar with the most ticket sales, I think, was one year. It was like mid 2000s when it was in Edmonton something like that maybe yeah. um, but I'm not sure I'm not sure about TV ratings 
Yeah, so it, I, I think TV ratings would be different, but if you want, like you watch the slam events in terms of ticket sales, like there's no one in the stands really, right? Yeah, Same but apparently, it, apparently it gets good ratings. But you're right, no, they they play the they play the slam events in usually very small facilities, three thousand to six thousand. Um, you know, usually usually basically in a uh, junior hockey rink. Um, yeah. But the, but apparently the the ratings are fine for those. Yeah, maybe. But I guess the other question, and here's where I think it's really a bubble from an economics perspective, is who pays, right? So somebody's got to be putting money into the sport in order for it to cover the cost of the professionalization. Uh, And where it gets really bubbly to me is that if you miss your medal target, then your funding gets pulled, right? So in Britain... The wheelchair team did not perform well at all at the Paralympics, and so their funding was cut entirely. I think, personally, I think actually Team GB probably dodged a bullet on the curling side. Uh, they did well enough in other international competition that could probably persuade UK sport to give it another go, even though they just missed the medals uh, this time. But if Scotland or Team GB misses the medals, misses the podium again in all three sports come uh 2022 what happens then if the funding gets pulled like in wheelchair curling right after you know i took up and talked to scottish people and they're like oh yeah if you go back 20 30 years there'd be 50 60 100 teams signing up for scottish men's playdowns now it's you sign up and go hmm. right like basically they had nine teams or 10 teams sign up last year three of them junior teams for the scottish men's championship because a lot of the competitive curlers are like, why should I go and enter just to get destroyed by Smith or Mullet, who are basically full-time curlers? Isn't the same thing happening in Sweden too? Didn't yeah, they it's the exact pull, same thing there. Yeah, they kind of they pulled like all the funding almost, right? For curling. Yeah, they pulled all the funding. So what happens to Team Adin now, right? Like it's not it's not a cheap proposition to run one of these pro teams. Like speaking to some people over here to run a to run a European team where they want to send them to Canada and other international events for a full season somewhere in the eighty to one hundred thousand euro price range. Once you factor in entry fees, cost of getting the team and the support staff there, uh, cost of equipment, meals, accommodation, all of that. So that's not a cheap proposition, and very few teams crack one hundred thousand euros a year in winnings. It's basically the top five or six. So if the Olympic committee stop funding curling or they have budget cuts, you've basically run off that base of the competitive pyramid, if you will, the kind of the club curlers kind of paying the dues, doing a lot of stuff around the club just to kind of keep curling going. If they've all been run off and then after the big sports agencies pull the money from above, it's not really clear what you're left with in terms of you know, how the sport functions or if the sport ends up being a lot smaller. Is, is this a problem in other sports though, or is this something that's just happening, uh, in curling? It's also, I mean, you, in, in American football, you're seeing a lot fewer participants, um, at the lower levels and a lot of, well, and it, the reasoning for that is completely different than curling. Um, but you're seeing fewer participants at the lower levels in that. So you you won't see what effect that's going to happen at in college football or the NFL for another 
10 years probably. So it'll be interesting to see what football looks like 10 years from now. Um, but it, it, is there an Olympic sport that this, that this same thing is happening to? I don't know if like happening to, but I think, you know what? So the other big winter Olympic sport, that got a huge chunk of cash, actually more cash uh, from UK sport was skeleton. Right. And okay. do you know how many skeleton tracks there are in the UK? Uh, if there's one, I'll be stunned. Yeah, there's zero, right? Uh, there's actually only 17 tracks on the planet where you can do bobsleigh, luge, or skeleton. But UK sport figured out a few decades ago that skeleton requires a certain kind of body type. And so what they do is they have these tryouts for like all around the country for to kind of see if you have natural athletic ability and they try and target teenagers. And if someone has the proper body type, the proper biometrics, kind of good form, whatever, they'll grab that person and start training them to be a high performance skeleton racer and then send them to one of the tracks in the Alps. Interesting. Basically year round. So so you'll, you'll get Brits getting sent to, you know, Germany, I imagine Switzerland, uh, and just live there. Kind of, kind of like sending Team Muit to Canada to to compete in curling, right? Yeah, and I mean that for a lot of the kind of countries outside the Big Four, or Big Five, right? That's what curling is. Like, there's no indigenous curling culture in China. The way the Chinese curling program works is they basically go into the sports academies, find people who were selected as good athletes, but perhaps weren't kind of on the performance path for, for whatever their sport was. And instead say, Hey, why don't we move you over to the curling program? And they've got like 30, 40, I'm not sure how many they've got, but they've basically got a very small pool of curlers that they train kind of year round. They're able to roll out three, four teams on each side, send them out and see what they get over an Olympic cycle, but it's not a grassroots mass participation sport. Aren't they trying to change that? Aren't they trying to build more curling clubs in can? I forget in China. I forget there was it, it was one of the recent um, events. They were doing an interview and they said that they were building some ridiculous number of of curling clubs throughout China uh, into in anticipation for the the next Olymp the next Winter Olympics. Yeah, so I've heard that right. So so that's that's kind of the. The dream, right? That's the U.S. curling model where you go out, you do, you get curling on TV in your country, you win medals, everyone sees it, they want to come out and try curling, boom, you all. I mean, it's somewhere like China, right? Like if Canada's got a million regular curlers, that's a pretty significant chunk of the Canadian population. A million curlers is not even one percent of the Chinese population, right? It's one tenth. It's not even one tenth of one percent, actually. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. it's like. In terms of market share, you don't need that much for a country like China to to really have a boom in the number of curling rinks. But there's a question of if if you don't have uh, if you don't have the infrastructure at the grassroots level, it's really hard to imagine how you get the next generation of curlers up to that elite level, right? Because curling's curling is different than skeleton. It's not the like in skeleton or bobsleigh you can take a good sprinter or a good American football player who's got really good kind of explosive power and turn them into a bobsled athlete pretty quickly, right? For a skip, 
you know, I, I can't think of any skip who hasn't been playing at a pretty high level for less than a decade before they're kind of metal competitive at an international scene, right? Most skips in curling peak in their 30s, right? So it takes a decade plus of training to get someone to be uh, a world-class athlete there. And if they're not, if there's not a club infrastructure in place, volunteer coaches, kind of leagues that you can kind of slowly climb your way up at and cut your teeth in, it's hard to imagine that if you kind of decimate that base of the pyramid, if you will, uh, how you get the next kind of peaks of the pyramid later on. I think, shoot, the only the only Olympic sport that I, I that I think curling even compares to, just based on the fact that you you qualify as kind of a self-formed team, but you qualify for the Olympics as a team instead of just bringing everyone together and turning or bringing in pieces and turning them into a team from various corners of the sport would probably be sailing. It's it's kind of the same thing. You have, you have the leader of the boat. You have people who work together who are used to working together and personalities probably play a big, um, a big part of it. Uh, yeah. I, I think in U S sailing, you qualify as a team. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. Um, and I think the same, probably the same thing in rowing, right? I think you qualify as a team. Yeah. So what I wonder, I would be interested to see what, you know, what the numbers look like in those two sports. And again, those are, those are two sports that the equipment kind of, costs a lot of money uh whereas curling curling the 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 monetary commitment is relatively low if you have a club that has its own rocks in your town yeah so curling's weird right it's It's really really expensive (laughs) to build a curling facility Mm -hmm. but then once the facility's there it's actually dirt cheap to participate yeah you need a step on slide on a broom plus whatever the league fees are. Yep. And then you need so yeah, so what do what do you think the future of the sport looks like in Canada? I don't know. I, and, I'm, in, and in Scotland too. I'll give you Scotland too. I I'm more worried about Scotland than I am about Canada, because Scotland's down to twenty two rinks. And to be honest, what seems to be happening there is there's actually some pretty vibrant junior programs at a lot of rinks, but then if the juniors figure out they don't really have a shot to win nationals come 17, 18, 19, they just quit the sport entirely. And then if someone doesn't win nationals uh, or isn't kind of nationally competitive or nationally competitive by the time they age out of juniors, they tend to also drop the sport as well. So uh, there, it's that's a big problem that, that there's actually an implosion of the club level curling there right now, right? So much so that there's a real question. If Eve's hip doesn't heal, it's not really clear what the women's side of the game looks like, right? Like it's it's they only have two teams in the program. They have Sophie Jackson's team that's just age out of juniors. They've got talent and potential, but like I said before, it actually takes quite a bit of time to to you know develop someone from a good junior player to a good kind of world-class elite curler and then uh on the men's side again there's not most people just kind of quit the sport entirely so it's not clear what's going to happen to the ranks as there's at kind of that grassroots level there 
what do you think could be done to, I mean, it, you're painting a pretty dark picture. What can be done to kind of help things or possibly save the sports um, to, in, to be, to be even more dramatic. How do we save Scottish curling, Jonathan? I mean, I think, well, I think all across the board, there's got to be a way to rethink the business of curling at the grassroots level. So it's got to be, you know, the national governing bodies, but also club level curlers have to really start thinking about how they invest money and time into not just recruitment and retention, but also giving people at the club level some kind of reason to stick around. Right. Cause like the, the, the Briar, if it's kind of like the classic event or the Scotties, right. Is a classic event in curling. It basically, the old model was you'd win your, you'd have to play down and out of your club. You wouldn't, you weren't allowed to even get someone from another club to play on your play down team, let alone province. Right. So you'd, you'd win your club first, then you'd go to your zone and play the other clubs in your area. Then you'd go regionals, then provincials. So it really, the Travelers is actually more like the old school pure Briar than the Briar is anymore, right? Yeah. But if people don't have something to aim for locally that gives meaning to their season, I think that's when they start to peel off and go do do other sports. So how do you make how do you make people care about those events? Because it's I mean I, I believe the the Travelers is televised, right? But what? What do you what do you give um, the participants to make them care about that sport to to care about that event or what do you do to make the public care about that care about that event more? I know in the U.S. like the club, it's it's different because we just we don't have enough curlers right now to that the that you have to keep people from the same club in order to be competitive at a national and, and international level. You know, we could, we couldn't say, Oh, everyone, you know, you have to be on the same team if you're from Wisconsin or from Milwaukee or anything like that. Like you have cross regional teams that, that have to form in order to compete nationally and internationally in the U S it's not the same way in Canada. Um, although now it seems like you're going, you're pulling from, nationwide in Canada to go after the Olympics. But, you know, how, how do you make people care about the club nationals uh, in the U S how do you make people care about the travelers in Canada? I mean, if I was the King of curling, which I'm definitely not, uh, I would basically separate the pro game entirely from the amateur game. And so what that means is if you're playing on what I call the elite world curling tour, however you want to define it, then you can't play in the more amateur events and then disaggregate those events from each other, right? So I actually think that if we get to the point, and it sounds like in Canada, we're very close to the point where uh, they want to abolish any residency requirements for team formation. And a lot of teams out there are basically flaunting those rules anyway. But if we get to that point, to my mind, then what they should do is say, all right, the, the pro championship is going to be the Canada Cup. And the winner of that gets to go play in the pro worlds. And you go and play the slams, your World Cup of curlings, and whatever top level events that are funded you can create. And then, uh, for lack of a better term, you have an amateur game, which has tighter residency re- restrictions, basically club-based. 
And then maybe the travelers, the US World Cup of curling, and maybe you can get some kind of equivalent competitions going on in Europe, form it to some kind of world amateur event that's kind of clearly for the average Joes as opposed to for the the pros. But then, so what happens to the briar? I, that's the big question. Like, so the, that, that's the interesting puzzle. Because I actually think that, I mean, first of all, the pros boycotted the briar back in the early 2000s. I think the only reason why the pro teams still continue to play in it is because of the money and the TV exposure to attach to it. I guess partly for tradition. Like I think obviously a team like Gushu, like Brad Gushu for him, that was the one thing not in his resume. And I I can't see him like boycotting the briar, but probably for those guys, the Olympics now drives everything. So maybe the Olympic qualification process should just be totally separate. Maybe the way to do it is make the travelers and the briar the same thing. And the winner of the Briar gets to play in the Canada Cup as kind of an amateur path into the pro game, as opposed to the pros kind of swooping into the amateur game, if you will. So if you separate, I, I guess, I guess my question is, why do people watch the Briar? Uh, are they, are they going to watch if the pros aren't there or would they watch Obviously, fewer people from from what I've heard on r- ratings wise, you know the the Canada Cup obviously gets less ratings than the Briar. So if you take the provincial jacket off of the pro player, fewer people are going to watch. Yeah. But if you remove the Cooies and the Gushus from the Briar, what is the Briar's? Uh, TV ratings going to look like? What is its attendance going to look like? And then what future do you think it has if you're taking those teams out of it? It probably, so here's the thing. It probably takes a beating on ratings and uh, I, I can't see it being in the saddle dome anymore. And I, it probably won't be um, to, to on your TV credit, all the time. To your credit, nothing should be in the saddle dome anymore. <laughs> I mean, but I think fine. But then I guess the bigger question is, if is that what the metric should be for an amateur championship? Or is it better if um, it's not that, right? Is it better if just we just say that's what the Briar is, it's the amateur game, maybe the finals are on CBC. So you're basically dialing it back 20 years, but then it's a mass participation event. But then you have the pro events and see if they can kind of sustain themselves on TV or not. Do you, th- if you did that, do you think there would be, like, if you tightened the residency rules, do you think that there would be pro teams that, out of love of tradition and love of the briar, would compete on the World Curling Tour circuit, but adhere to the residency rules because they wanted to play in the briar, like, say, Team Gushu? Do you think that that would be a team that they would all live in Newfoundland and while they still participated on the pro le- on the pro stage would still want to participate uh, through the process that gets you to the briar? I don't know. I, I kind of wonder like if you if you also pulled say the money that's attached to winning the briar, the cresting policy, all of that stuff that the pro teams really asked for during the boycott 15 20 years ago. Um, if that 
money was taken away from it, I actually wonder if a lot of them would just say, I'm going to go all out for the Olympics. I'm going to select the events that are going to help me get to the Olympics. And if the Briar doesn't have as many CTRS points because it's not as strong a field, if it doesn't have the money attached to it, maybe those teams then say, it's actually far better for me to form a super team cross country and then just go play uh, play the events that I need to play in in order to get to the world championships and the Olympics. Do you think then there, do, do you think that would result in more big events going to China and Europe and the United States if you're not as worried about, you know, having to stay in Canada for, uh, to prepare for playdowns and prepare for the Briar? Uh, it might be. It might, it might end up being a, like a, a genuine world pro tour, right? Where, you know, this week it's Sweden, next week it's China, uh, and you've got the top. I mean, realistically, we're talking about 20 to 30 teams globally that have a shot right now at kind of Olympic gold, right? In four years' time. Mm-hmm. So we're most basically of which, talking, most of which are Canadian. Most of which are Canadian, that's true. But really, you're talking about the top 30 on the OOM standings. So you're talking at each side. So you're basically talking about 250 people, right? Out of a game with you know millions of people. And basically, I'm saying those 250 people need their own thing. And that's no different than like a lot of pro sports, right? You've got like 400 basketball players that can make money or you know, X number of baseball players or, you know, whatever it is in hockey, 600 hockey players. So like, let them do their thing and give them events for them and figure out a business model that works for them, but then reinvest in some kind of grassroots play down structure that the amateur can play in, right? That's a local tied to the club you're playing in. I think also the events have to be structured in a way that it's reasonable for a person or a job to compete in, right? It's You can't have these like starting a Tuesday bond spiels. It's got to be kind of a Friday through Sunday thing mm-hmm. uh, and make it something that's kind of publicly accessible. And then th- then you kind of save the, the grassroots of the game by just letting the pros and the amateurs go their separate ways. Yeah, that it's... It's interesting to see what the future and really the what eventually happens because it as I said it's the biggest event on the calendar in the sport. Um, what happens? To, what happens to the Briar is what's going to determine what what path we go down. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, can you think of any other sport <clears throat> where the biggest event is still kind of a semi amateur event, but the game itself's kind of shifted? More towards the pros, not just that, but that it it's limited to one country's participants. Yeah. So when you factor that in, I think that it, it makes it one of the most unique sporting events in the world. Where yeah, I, I think yeah. it's a great event. But I mean, I, that, yeah. I'd watch it no matter what. Like, I, I, I would definitely, but I'm like, you know, I don't know if you have mass fans, but I think that like purists will always want to watch the Briar and Scotty, see the provinces. Like, there's an appeal naturally when you see like, oh, this is an auto mechanic or a mortgage broker or whatever, right? It's people <laughs> with jobs playing on TV. 
in an event with stature and significance, playing with a province on their back, it's a very kind of appealing event, I think, but it's got to keep its purity. If it's just, you know, seven or eight pro teams clearing up in the early part of the week, the amateurs, and then beating the crap out of each other basically turns into the ninth slam or whatever on the calendar. It's, it's actually less and less interesting an event as it kind of moves more and more into the pro direction. Uh, I would, oh, I would definitely agree with that. And, and I'm, you know, an American who didn't grow, you know, who only watched his first briar, you know, five years ago. And I agree with you there. Uh, I can only imagine what people who grew up curling and grew up watching this event feel like, uh, in Canada. And I, I think that if, if they tried to go the other route, if they tried to make it more of a pro event, you would have a full fledged revolt, uh, in, in Canada, I think. Yeah, I think I think the I think it's going to come to a head over the residency issues because the the pro teams really want to be able to pick whoever they can from wherever they can, and I I don't begrudge them that that makes total sense. If I'm gunning for an Olympic medal in three years time or four years time, I I want the three best teammates that I can get in order to achieve that goal. But what I don't want to see is those ten fifteen teams kind of ruined the rest of the game just in their personal pursuit of the goals. That's why I think it's really got to, we have to really start thinking about letting the pros separate off from, from the average player. All right. Your prediction, what happens to the Briar in the next five years? Uh, does it become more pro or does it become more amateur? And what would TSN, what would TSN prefer? A TSN wants the big names in the Briar, right? So because There's of no that, so that factored in, what do you think? Does it go more pro or more amateur? I, I'm worried that it goes more pro and then it ends up, we basically have what I'm calling the curlpocalypse, that that you basically get to the point. I mean, it's already happening in some provinces where playdown entries are less than, less than a ha- like, you know, 20 or less, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. preposterous. But, you know, it basically will end up being the point where it's the top 30 teams in the country entering some kind of playdown process to basically see a slam with provinces that are very thinly related to who the players on that team, you know, are from or live with or are tied to. Yep. I mean, we're, we're almost there now and they only allow one out of province players. So I, I think it goes more pro. I think that money talks and unfortunately I think that's what's going to wind up happening to the briar. And then we, we lose it as what we used to know it by. Um, so I, I, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm also a pessimist. Yeah. I'm kind of agree with you too. All right. So let us know what you think. Um, what should be done to help curling at the grassroots level from the, the top? What do you think curling Canada, USA curling, curling GB, uh, what, what do they need to do, um, to, to help the grassroots level of curling? Um, and what do you think is going to happen, uh, with the future of pro versus amateur curling? Uh, please get in touch with us. Uh, we are at, Rocks across the pond at gmail.com. You can always find us on Twitter at curling podcast. Uh, thank you for listening. And remember, uh, if you haven't yet to please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, Google play, Stitcher, tune in and wherever you find your podcasts. 
Um, thank you so much for listening, uh, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you.